Hi, my name is Brad Elder, a neurosurgeon at Ohio State, and I have the pleasure tonight of introducing three authors of a guidelines paper entitled Congress of Neurological Surgeons Systematic Review and Evidence-Based Guideline for Pediatric Myelomeningocele. This continues a series of guidelines podcast topics. And with that, I will introduce our first author, uh, Dr. Susan Durham. Hi, I'm Susan Durham, and I am the, the Division Chief of Pediatric Neurosurgery at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. I'm Jeff Blount. I'm the uh, Division Director of the Pediatric Neurosurgery Division at UAB and Children's of Alabama. And hi, I'm uh, David Bauer. I'm a, a Pediatric Neurosurgeon at uh, Texas Children's Hospital in Houston. Great. Well, welcome to all of the authors. Uh, before we get started, I do want to thank each of you for your time tonight and recognize fr from the outset what a tremendous amount of work goes into uh, developing these guidelines. Uh, with that, I'll turn it over to the authors to give us a brief description and rundown of what they set out to do and what they found. So I'll take this away. So as a pediatric neurosurgeon, one of the main uh, conditions we're often called upon to treat is kids with open neural tube defects or uh, they're called myelomeningoceles. And it's basically when part of the uh, neural tube in the lower part of the spine or really anywhere on the back um, doesn't close normally during development and babies are born with a defect that we're often called upon to repair. Um, and what got this us interested in providing guidelines for this, but there, there are so many different aspects to the care of children with myelomeningocele. Uh, this goes on from, you know, when do we close, when do we need to close this open uh, defect on the back to when do children need to have, you know, a shunt placed and who gets a shunt placed. And also uh, just natural questions about what does, this, what does this surgery mean for the development of the baby? And are there things we could do better? So is closing the back prenatally, which we've done for years now in some centers, is, does that mean kids have better outcomes, don't need shunts? Do they walk better than other kids? So we set out to kind of answer a bunch of questions with, the, um, with these guidelines. And we, there's a group of people that work together in pediatric neurosurgery and sort of figuring out which guidelines do we wanna look at and what do we have questions about and how can this help us guide um, pediatric neurosurgeons, and neurosurgeons and the whole field in the future. And some of the questions for this particular topic were, you know, we had a lot of them and we went through them and we sort of by process of elimination picked five questions that we thought were really we didn't know the right answers for, and people had lots of questions about. And so I'm just gonna give you those five questions. And I think over the course of this uh, podcast, we're gonna delve into those questions a little deeper. And so the first question we wanted to know was, is there a difference in the proportion of patients who develop shunt-dependent hydrocephalus in kids that had their backs closed prenatally, that means while they were in the womb, versus kids that had the conventional postnatal repair, which means after they're born. So do they need to, do, is there a difference in who gets shunted? And the second question was, in kids with myelomeningocele, if we close the back in utero, so prenatally, do those kids actually ambulate better than kids that don't have their back closed prenatally, but have it closed after they're born? 
The third question was, in kids that are born with a myelomeningocele, do we need to close it within 48 hours? And that's sort of conventional neurosurgical wisdom is that we need to close the back by 48 hours or bad things are gonna happen. But do we really know that that's true? And our fourth question was, in kids that have hydrocephalus and whether or not the back is closed prenatally or postnatally, does big ventricles mean that they have bad uh, developmental progress? Does, do big ventricles cause harm neurologically? And the fifth and final question was, in kids that had prenatal versus postnatal closure, do the prenatal kids have a higher incidence of having tethered spinal cord? And that means having scar tissue actually develop at the area where we repaired it. And sort of, you know, again, there's this question of, you know, if we close them early while they're in the, in the, in the womb, do they have a higher rate of having this scar tissue develop versus whether, whether or not we do it after they're born? So those are kind of the five questions that we decided uh, we would include in this guideline on myelomeningocele. Great. I think we're going to pass to Dr. Blunt, if I'm correct. Sure. Yeah. So as you can see, really the, the cornerstone, I think, of a lot of conversation right now in spina bifida really hinges on the, the monumental effect that the MOMS trial had. And I think it's worth a minute of time to kind of pause and reflect a little bit on the history of that, because the early work for in utero closure dates back, the MOMS trial was published as a prospective randomized trial that came out in 2011. But the early work was really done way back in the 1990s. I mean, say way back in the 1990s. You know, generationally, that was a long time ago. And there were, there was a lot of work done at a handful of centers with fetal closure and fetal surgery, trying to see whether or not in animal models, this would be useful. And there were some experimental models that looked really, really good. And then there were some trials that were done just at a very small number of centers. The, the group at Vanderbilt, Dr. Tulipan, who really dedicated the last part of his career uh, to this. And then Dr. Wellens picked it up after Dr. Tulipan got sick uh, and ultimately died. But, um, but th so there was early work. And then it's really important that people understand that there was, there was a moratorium, which really exemplified a lot of discipline uh, on the part of groups that wanted to do surgery, but there was an agreed upon moratorium that people would not pursue this outside of the guide, outside of the, the ground rules of this prospective trial. And this prospective trial was organized and carried out in the early part of just after the turn of the century and then ultimately published uh, in 2011. And of course, everybody's familiar with it. It's the MOMS trial, New England Journal, 2011. And it really has revolutionized uh, the approach to spina bifida, certainly in North America and, and really around the world now. So, you know, a lot of the questions right now really do hinge on whether or not the benefits um, that appeared to be present in that uh, prospective trial a, carried over over time, B, could be replicated, and C, were offset by other problems. Like, for example, the issue of tethered cord is one that comes up again and again. For example, are the benefits that are achieved with early intrauterine closure offset by any declines 
because of a higher rate of tethered cord. And that's one of the reasons why it was, why that worked its way into the, um, into the fifth question. But the, the key findings of a, the MOMS trial, of course, were that hydrocephalus was significantly less. The kids picked up at least one functional level. The kids showed a little bit better developmental motor uh, uh, progress and perhaps most importantly, had a significantly decreased incidence of the posterior hindbrain malformation collectively called the Chiari 2. So less Chiari 2, less hydrocephalus, one higher motor level, and potentially even a little bit better developmental outcome. That was very promising because those were the, those were kind of the holy grails of looking after kids with spina bifida. So the first question, of course, talks about whether or not we could show whether or not there was a difference in shunt-dependent hydrocephalus in prenatal versus postnatal closure. I'll make one other point, then I'll turn it over to David for some comments. It's also, I think, another little pearl of sort of the, the, the landscape of the history of this is, is that while this effort was going on, there was a simultaneous effort going on with somewhat different ground rules. Another set of guidelines was being put together by the Spina Bifida Association. And the targets were quite different and the methodologies were different. The targets for our effort, the joint section of the Congress of Neurologic Surgeons and the AANS, wanted to be very rigorous with regard to the way that we applied rules of medical evidence very much in keeping with all of the other guidelines done under the auspices of the Congress. Crisp definitions, crisp understanding, and that frames to some degree the questions. I remember when Susan and David and I and a bunch of other folks sat down that first day, we, had, we were teeming with questions. And one of the important criteria was questions that are not only clinically relevant, but questions for which we can try and find something in the literature. So the Spina Bifida Association guidelines were aimed more at the clinic with sort of a practical, a much more, um, a much more lenient view with regard to expert opinion and things like that. And the guidelines put forth by the committee um, were, were more crisp. And I think those little pieces of history, I think, uh, shape a little bit of the understanding. So I'll turn it over to Dave. Thank you so much. And Brad and Susan, uh, I'll uh, talk a little bit about the methodology and, and sort of how, how we got here. So um, just to, as background, all three of us um, have extra training in guidelines methodology. And this is um, through the CNS, but also through our individual career path, um, getting either a master's or an MPH um, in healthcare research. And so uh, when you think about guidelines and uh, making uh, practice recommendations that are based on evidence, we're really doing something called a systematic review. And um, I know there's going to be a uh, podcast in the future on on how we create guidelines, but just in brief, it's it's important to sort of understand the framework. So the um, uh, guidelines, they really start with a question. And when you have a question, you do a, a systematic review, which means you have a system of rules that you apply the question to these rules, and then you evaluate the literature based on these rules, and then you um, grade the literature and then make recommendations based on the quality of the medical evidence 
um, and then you write your guidelines. And so really there's a, a method to doing it and that's important because you wanna make sure that um, you do not have bias in your recommendations. And so we um, uh, met as a group, we have 14 authors. We came up with questions, did a, a literature search, then um, evaluated the literature and finally graded the recommendations and if you go to the CNS website, you can see the methodology and also better understand the way that the evidence is graded. Um, and I know I've, I've um, did that when uh, I was uh, starting out um, under better understanding the guidelines, and it really was 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 helpful. Thanks for that that wonderful synopsis of of all of your work. Could I add one thing to just what sure. David said? I think it's important because we take evidence. It's very easy to take evidence in a single manner, a, a unidirectional way and say evidence is good, strict rules are good, it pushes us to higher bounds, pushes us to higher standards. And that's absolutely true. But as with most things in life, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword. It's a little bit of a yin and a yang. And by that, what I specifically mean is, is that most evidence in surgery, and particularly as you look backwards, is of a lower class evidence. We do a lot of work based on class three evidence, right? Observational retrospective studies was largely what our whole world has been historically, right? So when one, when one comes across a randomized prospective trial, that's class one evidence by definition, right? So if you've got a collective group of work where you've got a whole series of class three papers maybe with a couple of class two papers thrown in there, but then you put in a randomized prospective trial, that's the, that's the monster in the room. So that that has a tendency to eclipse the power of the evidence from the other papers. Well, and the obvious one here was the mom's trial. Now the mom's trial by any standard was a well done trial. It was thoughtful, it was comprehensive, the assessment was good, it was multidimensional, the investigators were careful. I mean, there's a million good things about the mom's trial. But as with any trial, there were limitations. For example, the inclusion criteria were fairly crisp. If you look at the women that were candidates for this trial, for the most part, they were virtually all Caucasian, thin women who had enough resources to stay and accommodate a prolonged period of time around their treatment center. Well, that's not necessarily everybody. So I'm not I'm not knocking the mom's trial. They move the what they move the needle very significantly. But any trial has limitations. Any trial has has inherent challenges to it. So when you put a, a class one trial in with other papers, the the class one trial eclipses the other papers. And so as we worked our way through a number of these questions, we had the recurring events say, well. Paper X says this, paper Y says this, but the mom's trial says this, and it would kind of eclipse. So that the mom's trial, because of its power of its evidence, uh, in light of what David was saying about uh, stratifying the quality of evidence, definitely impacted the guidelines very heavily. So you mentioned the mom's trial. Is there a lot of discordance uh, just to kind of extrapolate from what you've been saying, is there is there discordance with the mom's trial and some more recent study, even though they're lower or lower classes of evidence? Can you give us some examples? What's happened since the mom's trial is that the technology has moved on a little bit. And so now the approach to in utero closure, there's basically sort of now kind of two camps, which is to say, 
the surgical approach using the mom's methodology where an open approach is used, midline incision, opening of the gravid uterus, rotation of the of fetus, closure with sort of conventional techniques, then reversal of steps to back out versus now a fetoscopic technique, right? And a fetoscopic technique is classically minimally invasive and the usual pluses and minuses of better exposure and less invasive. So in a sense, the two worlds have, 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 have separated a little bit. So now there are kind of two camps. I don't wanna make it sound like they're opposing one another, but at some level, there is a difference in approach. There is a difference in, in outcome. The, the, the outcomes have largely been sustained. Most of the reported outcomes from the various groups have uh, substantiated the initial mom's outcomes, which is to say better hydrocephalus, less uh, Chiari, uh, and, and good solid motor performance. So it's not like a bunch of studies coming out have been at odds. Um, virtually all of them have corroborated what was reported in the mom's trial. Yeah, yeah Jeff, I, I, I agree. I, I think um, most of recent papers have shown that the, the mom's trial data holds true. I think the um, hard thing about guidelines, and this is uh, really something I take to heart, is that the guidelines, so for the, the spina bifida guidelines, the literature search ended in 2016. Mm-hmm. Right. And so uh, the Institute of Medicine recommends updating guidelines about every five years because things change. And, uh, you know, it's amazing. You think about other uh, neurosurgery topics, um, uh, you know, treating tuberous sclerosis, um, you know, with uh, strips and grids and now uh, uh, SEG and lit. I mean, you know, things change. And stroke, so, right? Um, stroke. Yeah. Stroke. Uh, stroke and, uh, you know, intervention. Uh, treatment of aneurysms, things change, um, you know, over 10 years. And so we'll definitely be doing an update to the spina bifida guidelines, um, you know, sometime over the next few years to keep them, them current. Um, but that's, that's the, uh, the problem with guidelines. And that's, I think for the, uh, for the reader of guidelines, it's important to look at the date. When were the guidelines produced? When uh, was the, when did the literature search end? Um, so you can uh, realize how current they, they might be. So, so what, what, is the, what is the clinical trial or what is the study that is needed next? If, if you could just snap your fingers and make a trial happen, what would that be? I think one of the things that we're doing right now that's actually in a clinical trial is looking at the fetoscopic or minimally invasive closure of myelomeningocele versus standard, uh, you know, the MOMS trial, which was the more open repair fetal prenatally and versus the uh, current, you know, kind of the traditional postnatal repair. Because one of the things that, you know, kind of got overlooked in the MOMS trial was the complicate, the maternal complications of, you know, uterine rupture, premature birth, and all these things that really affected the moms. And that's what really led to the, you know, creation of the minimally invasive, the fetoscopic techniques. So there's a couple centers in the country now that are just primarily doing the fetoscopic repairs and looking at the same criteria that the mom's trial looked at, which was, you know, shunting, level of ambulation, you know, hindbrain herniation. And I think that that, that's a clinical trial that is going on now that very closely imitates what we did, you know, in the mom's trial 20 years ago. Is it randomized in, the, in a similar fashion or is it, is it more of a no, single that's arm? That's the paradox. That's the paradox, Brad, is, is, is that as this 
technology has caught fire, which it absolutely has, there are increased numbers of centers and different methodologies. So the remarkable sort of restraint that was shown early on when everybody did a moratorium and nobody did the work for the betterment of science, we're kind of opposite that now. There are increasing numbers of centers utilizing different techniques so that each center has a relatively smaller cohort. Of course, CHOP being an exception and probably Vanderbilt and maybe others that, and probably Texas as well. I would guess Texas and, and CHOP are probably two of the busier centers, but still it's not the same as when there were only three places you could go and one technique. Now there's the most recent estimate I heard was about 26 to 28 centers around the country that do this. And it may be more than that now. And there's at least two broad techniques. And then like every other procedure, there's variations within the technique, right? One person's endoscopic may be slightly different from another. So that's a bit of a challenge. But I think that for the learner, it really is important that we not get too mired in the challenges. It's important that we understand that. But, but to, to drive home the message, the original pluses of moms largely have been borne out by subsequent studies. And that really is important. We did in the guidelines find that shunt-dependent hydrocephalus was the best available evidence was that it was less in prenatal closure. Now, again, the mom's trial weighed heavily here, but the other trials both at that time, which David points out in 2016, and subsequently that has been a good thing. But that also ushers us into question four, which remains very much a question, whether or not the larger ventricles that are, that are a part of being less aggressive, that come with a less aggressive approach to shunting, uh, does that have a neurocognitive downline penalty? And we don't have perfect data for it. The best available data right now suggests that it's okay. We're more than 10 years, I'm sorry, we're right on 10 years out from the mom's trial. And the neurocognitive assessment of those kids with somewhat bigger ventricles appear to be doing well in terms of maintaining that they're doing as well as their peers. It's always a little nerve wracking when we have treatments available on the shelf, namely a shunt to tolerate a kid with really big ventricles. But as the data continues to compile that the kids with bigger ventricles and rounder heads are doing okay, I think that becomes, you know, it, it's still a question, but it, it becomes better. And, and just to just to clarify for that, Jeff, what you're saying is that um, before the mom's uh, many, many kids with spina bifida would get shunts. Um, however, now uh, the criteria of, of the mom's trial allowed um, a child to have bigger ventricles without having a shunt. Is that right? That's correct. The, the moms did it very well. There was a, there was a panel um, of non-moms specific, you know, investigators and the, and the, and the, so those cases were, were judged. Um, so it, I don't want to make it sound like there were bias laden, you know, criteria, different criteria at one center than another, but, um, the kids with in utero closure, um, oftentimes have a little bit bigger ventricles, um, than, than, than if we went a conventional way where 80, 80% of kids with myelomeningocele get shunts. And the objective is normal head growth within the, within the normal range with, uh, called physiologic size. Great. Well, we are pushing up against our time limit. Uh, I want to give each of the authors uh, an opportunity to make any comments, any questions that we missed, or uh, anything that they want to add for the uh, podcast listeners. 
I think, you know, one of the things that strikes me about this topic is when I was a resident, I was on call um, at, I trained at Penn and I was on call at CHOP when one of the first babies that had ever been born uh, that was closed prenatally was born. And it was an amazing event because we didn't know what to expect. Like we didn't know the legs gonna work. Was this kid gonna like walk out of the womb? And so from that, from that was a while ago, and it's just amazing how this field has, you know, progressed. And, you know, most shocking, I think, to me is like, you know, we don't shunt as many kids and we don't do as many Chiari decompressions. And, you know, this stuff that seemed kind of space age, you know, is it's now kind of common. And that's, uh, that's fantastic for our field. I would echo that. I think that we, we can't, you know, that this is a great example of how uh, thoughtful, thoughtful use of technology really has uh, revolutionized the approach to a problem. It's still not the same all around the world. And I think it's important we keep that in mind that spina bifida is a tremendous problem in uh, low and middle income countries. And these technologies are not available there. Significant questions still remain pertaining to maternal risks. And a lot of energy has gone into that. And I think tremendous progress has been made. Those, those risks appear to be coming down. The frontier in my mind right now still is tethered cord. This does appear to be a challenge for these babies. Um, and, you know, I think we need to continue close longitudinal view on these kids to make sure that what we're making up in one domain, we're not losing in another domain because all domains matter for these kids and the bladder and the bowel are super duper important as the months and years. And, and just in closing, uh, I, uh, I really encourage everyone, um, go to the CNS website, uh, download the uh, free guidelines or on the website. You can check out other guidelines that are, that are on there, read the methodology and, and hopefully you might, um, uh, become excited about the uh, the methodology and and sort of the guidelines production. And if you are, uh, reach out to the CNS. Uh, we're always looking for uh, people to uh, help produce new guidelines. Well, that was fantastic. I want to thank the authors for an excellent job, not only in the and and a lot of work in the uh, production of these guidelines, but also their time tonight and a fantastic synopsis of their work. It's an interesting topic. I know I wish I could continue uh, talking about it and learning more. And so again, I want to thank the authors and uh, wish our listeners a good evening. Thank you.